I think the most important thing is not so much the X's and O's, but trying to understand each person, know what they're going through on their daily life and just being able to care for them and figuring out what works for them, what doesn't. As you mentioned earlier, we're not speed guys. We couldn't run 5Ks, 10Ks. So someone like that, you got to emphasize the strength spot, but you don't, you won't be able to get to know that unless you get to know each person. It doesn't matter if you're a three-hour marathon or a five-hour marathon. You, If you want to do something, you deserve to have the ability to be coached and a good coach will just help you get the most out of your ability because we all know that the challenge is against yourself, not against anyone else. It's about trying to get that potential out of, out of yourself to meet your goals. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 72 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. Brendan O'Leary epitomizes Boston strong and proved it in the 2012 Boston Marathon where temps hit 89 degrees and there was carnage on the course. In a race of attrition, he was shocked to pass Jeffrey Mutai, the 2011 winner who ran 2.03.02 on the side of the road and kept his focus on getting in enough fluids and showed us all how to stay in the fight, running 2.34, placing 41st overall, and 25th American. In 2014, the year after the bombing, Brendan had his breakthrough race, running 229, feeding off the huge crowds who were chanting USA, USA for Meb, who had broken through as the first American to win in years, breaking the tape in 208, and that huge big energy from the crowds helped to carry him home over the last three miles. Truly epic to rock your PR on such a historic day. We discussed Brendan's experiences running in the sub-elite field at the New York City Marathon in 2016, 17, and 18, and compared and contrasted the courses and what each requires. We closed focusing on the close-knit family culture they've created at Team ORT and examined three big breakthroughs by their athletes. The Sotos, the father-son team from Guatemala, both running sub-threes in the 2018 Chicago Marathon, qualifying to run Boston together. At Dr. Steph Plum, running five marathons in 63 days, earning her six-star medal along the way and finishing the last race up at CIM with her fastest time of all of them in a 3.42. And lastly, Erin Genova smashing through the sub-three barrier at CIM, running a 2.58 for an 18-minute PR. Stoked to see Brendan get fully healthy and start racking up some fast times again soon. And equally excited to watch him and coach Casey Kay, who ran the Olympic Trials Marathon in Atlanta, continue to grow Team ORT. I hope you all enjoy this convo as much as we did. So let's dive on in and take a listen. Brendan O'Leary, a long overdue welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How you doing this afternoon, brother? Good. How you doing, Ron? Oh, man, it's good to see you in that Zoom screen, man. We had our tech challenges. We tried a couple of times to get you on here. We couldn't pull it off, but you got a nice new laptop over there, and we're rolling on Super Bowl Sunday, brother, man. How you feeling today? 
Doing pretty good. How about you? Good, man. Neither one of us have a dog in this fight. So you're a Pats fan and I'm a Raider fan, but you know, it'd be fun to see two, uh, two teams that aren't in there often slug it out. So, uh, for the, for, uh, you know, the listeners of our program for Run Chats, how about you just do a little intro on where you grew up, um, what family life was like as a kid? I grew up in Whitman, Massachusetts. It's a small town about 20 miles south of Boston. Um, we have a regional high school, so when I went there, I was actually a, I, I was an athlete growing up, but I was a basketball, baseball player, and I got into running just to stay busy that fall season. And then it just turned into a passion after that. It also, I was five feet tall, 90 pounds. So that wasn't going to do much on the basketball court. But. So you had the pre-syndrome going. You were one of the smaller guys like me, feisty, but smaller. So, um, you know, we don't always uh, find our way into running right away. Uh, we like to play the big boy sports like football and basketball. And I wrestled too. But, you know, somewhere along the way, we realize our size is working against us and we eventually find our way to running. But you were also a baseball player too, right? That was actually my sport growing up. Baseball, I played actually up to freshman year and um, still liked it. But I realized if I came back sophomore year for cross country and all these kids were beating me that never beat me before. And that kind of pissed me off a little bit. So that lit that lit the initial fire, man. You know, it's it, it's funny how sometimes we don't find out till we get much older. But um, sometimes it's when we're kids on the schoolyard, man. When we find out the first time somebody beats us in a race or beats us in a game like hide and seek or anything, man. It's all of a sudden that's when we find out we got those competitive fires and juices. So right off the bat, the first time some people started beating you in a race, you realized uh, that was going to be your thing, huh? Absolutely, uh, I was. Came obviously from taking the spring off from playing baseball and didn't do my summer running. I came in sophomore year and I was probably like the sixth or seventh sophomore on the team where I was the first or second freshman the year before. So that kind of just made me realize it. Wow. Yeah, isn't it? It's amazing how quickly, you know, you can lose lose a few places in the pecking order, you know, because at, at that age, man, we're all over the highway, man. We're playing a lot of sports. We're growing up. The hormones are going. We don't really know what we want to do yet. And um, sometimes it takes a couple of years before we really like run into a coach or a mentor or somebody who kind of gets us to find our path. So was it really just more or less that where you lost a couple spots and realized you wanted to get into it? Um, did you have an influence of anybody, you know, a mom, dad, or, you know, a coach who was like pushing you to try to get you to get a little bit more involved and be more serious about it? It was a little bit about that. Uh, it helped that. I couldn't hit for baseball. <laughs> I, I was a terrible hitter. Uh, I was a decent pitcher, and I was actually the closer of our team, even being all 95 pounds. Very intimidating. Uh, but then we had a good cross-country and track program at the school. I don't think we – there was like a 20-year streak of never losing a meet. So having that culture and um, having a good coach that pushed you and got the best out of you definitely made things click a little bit and made me want to go all in for that. That's awesome, man. So what was your what was your coach's name? Are you guys still in touch today? Is he still around? Yeah, his name was Kevin Black. He's retired now, but he lives in the next town over. We chat all the time, comments on the Facebook pages all the time, seeing how I'm doing as a coach now. And so we stay in touch, which means a lot. I love it, man. There's nothing more important than that. So that's where the legacy gets started. Um, you know, you have that connection with your first real cross-country coach, and now he sees you come full circle, not only continuing to run and, you know, collegiately, post-collegiately, and, you know, doing some big things, you know, top 100 and 
Boston and New York, but also starting your own running team, you know, becoming a really awesome coach and helping runners of a lot of different levels, including getting runners to the Olympic trials. So that's got to be hugely fulfilling, right? Absolutely. Um, just the coaching aspect of it. I also coached with him a little bit too out of college. He was still coaching, but when I got my start in coaching, I went back and was coaching the girls team at my high school for six or seven years. So, uh, being able to coach alongside sort of your mentor on the other side, even though you're not coaching together, but being in the same program too. Nice. Nice. Well, I mean, that's where we learn our basic habits, right? Our discipline and, you know, structured workouts, you know, we, we're all going to learn it from somebody, from some coach. And then at some point, you know, we become students, you know, we, we tap into all the things. And for my generation, it was runner's world and just reading, you know, all the magazines, you know, we didn't have any online, there was no internet, there was no phones, there was none none of that shit. You just waited for something to come in the mailbox and read about, you know, what badass runner did something. And, you know, that's how so many of us grew up like idolizing pre and, you know, some of the other great runners from my generation. And, um, you know, we're quite a bit apart in age, but, you know, for you growing up, did you have a favorite runner, you know, when you started to become like a competitive runner in high school and started to really enjoy it? Funny you say that with runner's world and all that stuff. I think during my time, it was Die Stamp was the place to be for running news. <laughs> Don't know if you ever remember that, but I do. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they used to have everything on there, but um, so that's where all the information came and all that. But I would say growing up, person that almost everyone idolized back then was Bob Kennedy. We had the Kennedy Zoom spikes that you broke out for the track, the yellow ones where everyone had to have them. <laughs> And just seeing him compete against the best Africans out there in the world. I know he was the person that motivated a lot of people back in the what late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought his name up because a people of my age and generation will absolutely remember Bob. And maybe some of the athletes are coaching today may or may not. It'll depend on how hardcore they are with track and field. Um, what was amazing about him, as you said, is he was literally like the only American runner that could go indoor in the track or outdoor and run the crazy fast times against the Kenyans. I mean, he wasn't beating their marks, but he was lowering American records significantly, but also had the range to kick ass in the marathon and do big things in the longer distances as well. So he, uh, he could throw down at every level, including internationally, like a cross country. Like he'd be in the mix in those races as well. So he was a, a seriously well-rounded, tough runner who just ran some epic times uh, in his period for sure. And the spikes he had, everyone had to race in them back then, even though they're nothing compared to today. Yeah. If I remember correctly, help me out. It was like him and Todd Williams used to duke it out a lot. Todd Williams, they used to go head to head a lot. It, it, depend, it would depend on the distance. Um, they both had their like strengths and weaknesses, but some were better in like the half and other things. But um, and then Mark Coogan was really good. Uh, I'm trying to think who else when the, when they would run the trials. Oh, it was, what's his name? Uh, Bob Campanen too. He became a doctor, right? I don't know if you remember him. He, uh, I don't remember that name, but yeah, yeah, he was, he was awesome. He was tall, man, really big, tall guy, but they would always like duke it out in the men's trials. They'd be like brawling it out and, uh, you know, going head to head. But, um, I know another thing you had mentioned to me, you know, when we were getting, before we were talking about getting together is, uh, in high school, you used to, you ran with Shalane, right? You guys uh, basically were running in, at the same time during high school, right? We're the same age. And since you grew up in Massachusetts, all the big state meets and all that, uh, they'd be at the same place. And so every weekend we were at the same meets all the time. And every time she was always a few seconds ahead of me in these meets. <laughs> trying to, try to run her down, right? 
Yeah, she she was absolutely dominating back then. She'd be winning by two or three minutes on a cross country course and would have placed in the top twenty in most of the boys' meets and uh just totally kicking ass back then like she is now. <laughs> Amazing, right? To look back on it, but she was she was already crushing it at crazy levels back then and but still continuing to do amazing things today, which is even more amazing to have that longevity. And like you, has starting to have a real impact as a coach, you know, with Bowerman and um, coaching lots of uh, the women there and doing great things with them, right? Absolutely. And now, at least for her coaching-wise, seeing her athletes break her records. I know she commented on that the other day, how she'd want no one else to ever break them. But yeah, yeah she set the bar high and they're all just surpassing it now. She did, right? That meet was bananas, right? Elise Cranny broke her record, right? And then I think also, uh, what's her name? Uh, the steeplechaser, right? Also, didn't she also run faster than that time as well? But I mean, obviously, she's not the record holder because the other the other girl ran faster. But yeah, I think they both, what is did her she, name? Did Come, she get it? Yeah. Uh, Ferenc? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Fred, yeah, I always mess up her name. I, butcher I don't know her. how to pronounce yeah, it. <laughs> I butcher her name too, but she's awesome too. I, I have a soft spot for the steeplers, man. They're so... Uh, it's such a tough sport, man. It beats the hell out of the body. And uh, it takes incredible strength and endurance to uh, to pull that off. So um, going from high school to college for you, um, how was running in college, you know, comparatively to high school? And, you know, how did it set you up, you know, post, you know, for your post-collegiate running? Um, college, I started running. I actually went to Merrimack for a year because the year before their program was on the rise. But then I went there and Half the team had transferred when I arrived. Um, so it wasn't the best environment. So I was there for a year and then I transferred over to UMass Lowell, which is was a division two powerhouse. Now they're division one and competing pretty good. Um it was up and down. I dealt with a lot of Achilles issues and injuries in college. And after sophomore year, I actually walked away because I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Just putting in hundred mile weeks and um the culture up there was almost every day was a hammer fest. <laughs> you would just go out for a run and would be finishing up 10, 15 mile runs and would be finished up in the five forties, five fifties. And it just beat the hell out of your body a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, if you look back to, you know, the generation with Bill Rogers and Squires, you know, coaching all those athletes up there, that's what it was. And those guys were running that a lot of them were running three times a day. Um, mileage was completely bananas. I mean, north of, you know, 140 to 170 um, for some of the guys, not all, you know, um, not everybody can handle that kind of mileage for sure. Um, and strength was like kind of the secret sauce, but, you know, Squires always had them doing speed in the middle of these longer runs and longer workouts. So, you know, and that set up the duel in the sun, man, because he was coaching both of them, you know, and you know, I mean, just unbelievable, uh, you know, what went down up there in that area um, in that period of time. And it had to inspire guys like you coming up because, you know, man, you you have to idolize these guys, man. The Boston Marathon is being won by like local people who run up there, you know, who are just legends, right? Absolutely. And they were just a lot of no-name guys, too, that were working full-time jobs and just uh, top 100 at Boston running the sub-220s back then in the day. And it was just the GB, GBC club there, Greater Boston, they would just hammer everything and just put out so many ridiculous performances. Like anyone that's curious about the history of Boston, go back and look at the times from like the 80s and it's just insane. The depth that was Americans were running. <laughs> yeah. And I think you hit on a key point, you know, 
these guys are like mailmen. They had regular jobs. They weren't like, you know, it wasn't like today where we're in work from home environments or, you know, like maybe not saying work from home doesn't count. It does count, but still it's not the same thing as going to an office, going back and forth to X, Y, Z, putting in your hours and coming home because you're burning up so many actual hours that way. Right. I mean, back then these guys were doing like regular jobs or even physical labor jobs and then going out there and crushing those crazy miles and showing up and running those times and not winning any money either. And if they were, it was like literally a paltry amount, right? Compared to today, which is still a tough way to make a living. You mentioned the mailman too. Who was it? Dick Mahoney, I think. Yeah. Uh, he was like 214, 215 guy. He's two towns over and he was a mailman. And back then just competed and finished in top 10. And yeah, just totally unbelievable. I totally mean, getting the job done. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, the Kellys, both Kellys, you know, the older and the younger and all of these guys, I mean, and, and Bill Rogers too, man. I mean, they, they were all working, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like anything like it is today. Um, but then again, if, in that generation, like Mickey Mantle worked in the off season for the Yankees, Joe DiMaggio worked. I mean, eventually they started doing advertising and television stuff, but it, that was like, even before then, those guys had to work football players, baseball players, basketball players. They worked an actual job in the off season, man. And then you look at today's athletes and it's really, uh, it's really remarkable to see the change. So, um, so college running, you transfer, you're getting your mileage up, you're getting stronger, but you're battling some injuries and you've had an issue with that Achilles, you know, the Haglund's deformity thing, which is one of the tougher ones. And it's funny because Shalane also went through that herself, right? Didn't she have a similar surgery that you had? If I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure she did. I don't think so. She had a foot surgery for an extra bone, I think in her toes. Okay. But I don't think it was the, I don't think it was the Haglund's, but um, who was the other one on and now Vanessa Frazier, she just had the same procedure okay. I had on the Haglund's deformity. And how's that been coming along? You know, because I know, um, you know, you've, you've had your share of battles, you know, trying to get healthy and stay healthy, which we all do, but that's a, that's a tricky one, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The recovery for the, I had it for years. I was running through pain, even when I was competing at a high level, the next day after the marathon, I'd be hobbling, um, I had to take precautions. Like one of the Boston's, I actually wore the Hoka Cloughtons. Talk about not a, not a racing shoe, but that's just what I needed to be able to get it done. Um, and the procedure is like a year recovery timeline because they actually have to detach the Achilles tendon. So you're suffering a ruptured Achilles in essence. Um, but then, so I pushed off surgery for a long time, but then I found a, there was a brand new procedure. I was actually one of the first ones to have it. That was all non-invasive. They go in with the ultrasound needle and ultrasonic waves just to bride the whole bone out. Um, and I was back running in eight weeks' time from that. Wow. So so that was something, you know, we put this stuff off, man, because if we have a choice, we're almost always going to go for you know, no surgery, no repair, and strengthening or whatever we can do, if try to correct an imbalance or whatever. The hardest ones are ones like that, you know, physical things where there's compartment syndrome or some other thing that we just can't fix because of blood flow or tightness or pain, you know, that's literally not going to go away unless something is physically moved. And um so how's that piece been going? I mean, you know, I know you're back out there and you're grinding again these days. How's it been going for you lately? Have you been healthy? Are you starting to get healthy? Are you starting to feel good about it? For the most part, that hasn't been too much of an issue. Um, 
I had gone like three years where I was probably walking with a limp almost every single day from that. So the biggest blessing is be able to walk pain-free and all that other stuff. But it probably took a good year till I felt like myself again because I probably compensated for it for so damn long <laughs> that I developed so many different weaknesses and all that. But right now it's going good. I haven't really tried to push or get into any races because then when COVID hit, everything canceled. And so... I've been running like 70 miles a week and staying in shape that way and just focusing on coaching. But the desire to get back out there is starting to, starting to get going again. Well, good, man. That's what, that's what we want to hear. So let's talk about, you know, so bridging over from college, like how did you originally, like coming out of college, when did you originally get started, you know, post-collegially with your running? How did you find marathons? How did that all come to be for you? I actually took a good six, seven years. Um, where I ran, but I was coaching girls cross country back at my high school and track. So I would run with the kids every single day. But I mean, we're talking what, 8.30, nine minute pace, five, six miles at, at the high school. I wasn't doing much. And um, I would throw in maybe a run on a Sunday on my own. But most of it was just girls high school type running. Um, so I did that for like five or six years, but I wasn't racing at all, really wasn't training. And then I don't know if you recall the year, but when the Olympic trials for women was in Boston, 2008, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Um, we went in, we brought the high school kids in to watch, and that sort of fired me up a little bit. And I came home that day. I think I went out for a 15-mile run where I haven't done anything that long and uh, just made the set a goal of wanting to qualify. For, and I found a race over the summer in July. It was a night race. And, Massachusetts, uh, around a lake started at like eight o'clock at night, <laughs> uh, and just doing loops. So I took me, it was a three month training cycle to get ready for it. And I ended up BQ and that, and that's how I got back into the, the desire of wanting to run marathons. So I had a nice long break where I didn't do anything. And then just seeing that one race gave me the urge to get after it. I love it. And for everybody listening at home um, that ran competitively in college and and cranked a lot of miles and maybe battled uh, through repetitive injuries or maybe even one injury that would continue to recur, um, I think the moral of that story is that five, six, maybe even seven-year period of running easier with the girls you were coaching could have been a boys' team, could have been a girls' team. It has nothing to do with boys or girls. Just the paces that you were running were just easier. Um, the amount of mileage was so much less. Um and the other thing too is you're not putting spikes on all those other things. I talk to people all the time, man. Spikes are so narrow, man. We're smashing our feet into these shoes. And, you know, I don't even care what the new ones to dragonflies with carbon. They're still narrow. They're still, you know, your foot is so damn compressed in there. And I just think I was talking to Kim Connolly about it the other day because, you know, she had uh, huge PF issues and, you know, in both feet and had injections and just so much scar tissue. And, you know, now that she's not on the track, and she's running way more on the roads and transitioning to marathon and, and running on trails and, you know, running in Flagstaff more, you know, she thinks that she's knock on wood, like over it because these things take time, man, they really do. And, you know, that period there of just letting your body kind of get back into it at a much slower, not only just slower pace, but also way less miles. You know, you probably rebuilt and re-strengthened any areas that may have been a little weaker, a little bit imbalanced. And, you know, again, not, uh, not putting that pounding on, you know, that spikes tends to put on the feet, particularly when you got that problem down there by the Achilles, right? Track, track spikes are awful. 
for the, for the feet, like you mentioned, they just really take its toll. Um, I can't remember who it was. It might've been Shailene talking about when she transferred over to the marathon and just the toll the spikes took on her feet and just going over to a road shoe just made such a huge difference in staying healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so funny. You mentioned running in the Clifton because uh, we've talked about this offline, you know, many a time. I don't think there's a greater shoe than the original Hoka Clifton one. They'll never be. I don't know. They can make a hundred versions of that shoe that I just break the original mold out. They still do it time to time. And I know, you know, once in a while, you'll see it pop up on running warehouse, man. And then I'll just go in and buy like three or four pairs of them again, because they never had a shoe that fit better. You know, even forget the carbon, man. You don't want to be running in carbon shoes all the time. It's not good for your feet, man. You, you need to run in regular shoes, right? You know this, man. You're a coach. You got to be preaching this to your athletes, right? Because how many runners out there today, they just want to run every single run in a carbon shoe. That's not the way to go, right? Absolutely not. It's just going to cause too many issues with your foot and not give you the protection you need. And just changing up shoes constantly, whether it's a, high cushion shoe of of just a racing flat lightweight shoe. It's going to work different muscles in your foot. And that's the key to mixing up the shoes all the time. And that Hoka Clifton is the best one out there. (laughs) The one I actually did a uh, wear test for them the other day, the Clifton nine and it said comments. And I said, still nothing close to the one. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. They don't mind me saying that, but (laughs) no, man, that's why they have you in the rotation because they want the real feedback and you've been around long enough to have run in that shoe. Um, And you know what? That's goals for them. If they can get that same kind of feel and get that same response from people who've logged the miles, then they're on, they're on to something, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, it's great advice because I think one of the most important things about what you said and what I preach all the time on this show is by going to a lower drop shoe occasionally, a higher cushion shoe occasionally, maybe even an actual trail shoe, like the Hoka's I just ran in because of the snow. We both have some snow right now today. Um, Like, the wear, the feel, the stride as you come through, your landing and roll forward. It's just all different, man. It hits every part of your feet different. And then all the lower muscles in the chain, all your ligaments, all your tendons, they're all just put in different positions to absorb that impact versus using only a fast carbon shoe that's going to be pushing you forward, that's going to put more strain on the calves, your shins, and other things in that lower part of the chain, if that's all you're ever running on, right? Exactly. And the, let's face it, the carbon shoe, you're not going to run easy in it. It's not going to prevent, you know, it, you can't run easy in it. If you are, you're going to get into some bad, probably form habits where the foot's not rolling the right way. So it's not the best thing for a recovery type run. Exactly. Exactly. So let's, let's bounce it back to after your eight loop run around the lake, qualifying for Boston, all that. So that's kind of your transition back to running. And that is like what, it's like 2010, right? Circa 2010, something like that time, time-wise, right? Might've been 09. I think my first Boston was 10. So July of 09. <laughs> and so, so that's your first Boston is 2010. Yeah. And what was that like for you, man? Because not many, not many of us get to run that fast in our first Boston. It was good. If we want to backtrack a little bit, my training, once I got the BQ, then I went all back to like, I was training like a college kid again. I was putting in 110 mile weeks and, uh, really just grinding out huge runs, 26 mile. I'd always do at least a 126 mile easy during a, um, training cycle. And so constant 110 weeks, 115 weeks, but, and I never liked to race for some reason. I've actually never run a half marathon. (laughs) 
Wow. Which is a fun stat. I just jumped right into the marathon. Never done a half as I would rather just grind out a solo run and have the pain that way. Just was my preference. Well, um, well I know who has our half marathon PR between us. So yeah, I can flex on you, you on that right one. There. Yeah, I got my 114 wins because you haven't run one. Otherwise, I would have gotten destroyed. But that's crazy. But it's also fun. And also on the on the cranking the mileage back up, of course, and, you know, you're a strength runner, you're a mileage runner, high mileage runner, and that's what makes you the runner you are. So, and every, we're all different. You know, you have runners you coach who can run really well running 50 miles a week, you know, running five or six days a week. And then you have guys like me and you who like to run miles. It's not like we're, it's a burden. We're like, oh no, we don't want to run. We like to run a lot of miles. We feel better. We feel stronger and we are stronger. It's not like, it's not just a mental thing. It is an adaption. The body is changing. You're stronger aerobically and all of it comes together. So that works for us. And somewhere in between that and many versions of left, right, and center of that are where somebody else is going to find their sweet spot, right? So you got the, the miles rolling and your first Boston. Um, what did you end up running? Because I know it was, a real, it was a really good debut. My first Boston, the goal going in was just looking at prior stats was top hundred. I think I finished 99th the first year and, um, ran two thirty three. made all the classic Boston mistakes. I think I went out in one thirteen <laughs> or one fourteen. uh, paid for it a little bit on the second half, but it was awesome. Cause I had my family was at like mile 15 since we're local. So my niece and nephew who were like maybe one and three at the time had signs for me as I'm running by. And once I got in the city, all the high school kids I was coaching were there. So, uh, it was just an awesome atmosphere to be able to have a first boss and have all these people in there watching you. Amazing. But I made the, I made all the mistakes. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, though? How else do we learn, man? I mean, and the thing that people don't realize is coaches make mistakes, too. Like, I mean, they make mistakes themselves as athletes. You know, I was talking with Kim, um, you know, about some things that she's done. You know, she ran her marathon in New York. And, you know, she said it herself. You know, I was like shocked that she was telling the tale. She's like at seven and mile eight, you know, girls are making moves. And she's like, I just covered it. it was, I thought I was like in a track race. And she's, you know, she's talking about it. And I could just hear her. And then, you know, she was talking the story about how Shalane, um, Amy, Amy Craig was it? And Des were the Olympians that year. So they were on the lead truck and they were like shouting and screaming at her. And she was just like, no, no, don't talk to me. Like, leave me alone. Like, you know, she just wanted to be in her own world because she was already struggling. You know, it was like, my, I guess like mile 17, 18 going up first Avenue, but anybody, a pro, a two-time Olympian can make, you know, an error in not their fitness, but strategy, how to run the race, you know, taking it out too hard. Boston, man, you, you've written up a great you know, guide to how to take on the course. But part of that is because you experienced yourself going too fast, letting the terrain dictate how easy that first 16 can be in that race when you're coming in super fit. And we all know the race doesn't start until the turn at the firehouse, man. It doesn't start until you make that turn and you start the series of Newton Hills, the chain of hills. And to me, I don't know if you'll agree or not, but I always think the first hill is the toughest one myself. Um, and not, you know, not, I don't know. I don't know if it's as tough profile wise or percentage grade or whatever, but it just seems like it's longer and it just doesn't stop. But it also could be that we haven't really taken on any hills to that point And we just made our first turn in the race so far into the course. How crazy is that, right? You don't make that first turn until there. 
the highway hill before the turn, I, I think is the toughest one on the course. I hate that hill too. Yeah. No, I wasn't talking yeah, about that one. 16. Yeah, yeah. That's by the <laughs> right, hospital. Right oh, I hate that hill. Yeah. I, Des hates I, it too. Um, and I think like every runner who's ever, ever run the race hates it. But what's com what's comical is they don't really even list that as one of the hills in the course. They but don't. Anyone who's run it knows damn well. And then also for some reason, the wind is always blowing like 40 miles right an hour. Because you know yeah. the cars, it seems like it's just blowing you like you just want to like fall off off the top of that bridge but you know for me i can always get myself kind of grounded a little bit there no i mean after you make that first turn you know at the firehouse and you start the first chain of newton hills i think the first newton hill is the toughest one myself yeah just because you're coming off the other hill um from all the downs and it's it is a little longer than you think too when you when you're going up it <laughs> yeah and i i think it's pretty steep too that first one but Either way, man, what an amazing experience. So, you know, not just 233, which is an incredible time, but 99, so top 100. These are big things, man. They're big milestone things, man. When runners, man, we chase these round numbers, you know, sub three, sub 230, this, that. And they all mean a lot, man. And that's why we have to train so hard to get them. But to be top 100 in Boston is a big deal. And as you were rolling through the course that day, did you have any idea of like what your place was? Not really, right? I mean, there's no way you could have known that, right? I mean, you must have had some, did you have any sense at all or? I had no idea till about mile, uh, just at the BC, mile 22 or 23. I had a friend that was watching. He actually knew my goal, so he was counting it. I think he told me 98th at that point. <laughs> So I, I had an idea. I was right around that timeline. Cool. Cool. And the family was out there with signs, man. That had to give you a boost, right? Absolutely. Um, that was right before, right before the highway hill. I saw that there was definitely a, a good spot to give me a little boost. Yeah. We all, we all need something to pick us up there, man. That, that one definitely is a kick. It's a kick in the balls every year, no matter. I mean, if you're having, if you, if you're running really fast and you're fit, it still hurts. And if you're not in great shape, you're always just like, oh my God, you know, it's your first reminder of what you have left because, you know, it's not that long after where you make the turn for the firehouse, right? What is it like another, maybe two miles up the road, a mile and a half, something like that, more or less? I think it's under a mile because I think they're all spread out like three quarters of a mile. And a lot of people aren't aware of it because it's never mentioned in the write-ups. So they get up there, they start struggling, they're breathing, and then they start thinking, I haven't even started the hills yet. <laughs> so it's kind of kind of kicks your ass if you're not prepared for it. It's true. And I think it's great that you have that in your write-up guide because I think that's one of the big mistakes people make. You know, they're so worried about Heartbreak Hill, but they don't realize that's not the, hey, it's not the only hill. But as you said, that hill getting across the damn highway, that hill sucks. I don't care if you're walking that hill, it sucks, but running it, plus you just bomb down into lower Newton falls, man. That's like the biggest downhill of all time. So you come plummeting down there and then, you know, just when you least expect it, it's like, okay, here we go. We got to scale, scale this sucker. So, so anyway, your first experience at Boston, totally amazing. 233, um, you get your top 100 and where do we go from there? Like I would say your next best top race the one that you're most proud of would be new york besides that or where would you go from there probably a toss-up but not my fastest time but the boston where it was 89 degrees um what was that was that 11 or 12 um i don't know but i do know that you came 38th that year and i know you got your sub 230 you got your 229 18 which is crazy 229 was actually 2014 that wasn't the hot year Okay. It wasn't my, it was my fastest time, but the hot year was my highest placement. And, um, 
not sure if that's my proudest moment because that was just absolute torture. <laughs> there was so much carnage on the course. Um, I think it was the year after they ran 203. Um, the windy year, I missed that year of an injury. So then this was my first year back and I remember passing Mutai who ran 203 on the side of the road, just lying there. Uh, and there was just carnage left and right in that hot year. And I like that race partly. It's probably a toss up between that and the PI just because as you say, I stayed in the fight the whole time, uh, and just constantly battled because it was not a pleasant experience. Yeah. And then when you, when you're passing Jeffrey Mutai on the side of the road, it's like, huh? Like, whoa, what's going yeah. on here? You know, it'd be like, you know, going by Kipchoge today or, or, uh, Meb when Meb was winning or any other great runner who's won Boston or won New York or any of the majors, man. It's just, it's not something you expect to see. Um, but you know, you know, on that day, you know, the heat day, you know, so the heat day is your highest placement. Uh, yeah, that was, I think I ran two thirty four, but everyone was like running eight, nine, 10 minutes slower. Yeah. Uh, cause it was just brutal. So that was my highest placement, but the best time was 14. The, I actually did the, yeah, Meb one, um, in, I was two twenty nine eighteen, And I think it was like mile 22 and a half. Someone was coming out of one of the townhouses yelling, Meb one and a whole USA chant started. So the last three miles of that was just unreal because I knew he would won. I was looking at my watch, knew I was going sub 230. And just the emotions were just uh, just carrying me through the last three because I knew the, the atmosphere of the last three was just crazy from him winning. So that was, you could feed off that like for the last three miles. And, you know, those are three great miles if you still have something in the tank. The problem is a lot of times we don't, um, you know, just because we've either run the first part too fast or it's not even first half, like it's really more like first 16 or so if you let it go a little too crazy there and then you don't have enough to to tackle the hills because once you scale heartbreak, man, and you're at the top of BC with all those drunken, crazy ass students, man, which is always one of my favorite parts of the course, man, you know, and they're all trying to give you beer and everything else, man, you know, hey, man, you want to have a shot? Sure, man, let's, let's down a shot. But, you know, when you bomb... You're taking a drink, right? Yeah. I mean, I, look, I've done just about <laughs> everything out there. I have not kissed a girl in Wellesley, and I sure as hell ain't going to start at 61. Um, you know, if I was going to do it, I would have been doing it in my 30s or 40s. And, you know, if I made it this long, I sure as hell ain't doing it now. But still, all that all that stuff is crazy. But, you know, so is that the year, because Meb's won more than once, is that the year of the bombing, or is that another year that Meb won? Meb just won Boston once. Oh, he only won once. Okay. Yeah. So it was the year after. Yeah. Year after the year bombing. Year after the bombing. Okay. Yeah. I thought he won it twice. My bad. So you got to ride that wave those last three miles in, man. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, how crazy that must have been because people had been like waving the flags and doing all the chants and everything else because it had been a long drought since an American had broken through and won in Boston, man, right? Absolutely. It had been years in. As you just mentioned, it was the year after the bomb and so the atmosphere of the Boston Strong signs and all that. It was just the atmosphere was one of a kind that year to begin with. And then he goes out and wins. So you're just carrying all that the last three miles. I just remember telling myself I, I was trying to push it. Then I, I was holding back a little bit saying, don't get carried away when you blow up because I, I had it in the bank. So what my goal was. So I was just sort of trying to soak it all in and just enjoy it. Unbelievable. Dude, now I've seen a couple of your best shots over the years, you know, that you've shared on Facebook or whatever. Um, I wish we had as many race photographers back then because you probably would have had a lot more, right? I mean, just think about how many more photographers are out there today versus, you know, for that race. 
Um, cause I bet you would have gotten some amazing shots of yourself coming in those last couple of miles, right? Uh, I think so. Cause back then it was, there wasn't many out there then compared to now. Now there's photographers left and right people doing it on the side that you see all the time. And, um, so I have a few photos, but not a ton. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll have to pick out our best one for this episode, man. It's going to be a choice between one of your great Boston ones or New York. So 229.18 that year, and then the post-race partying in Boston must have just been bananas. I mean, it's the year after the bombing. It's this epic celebration of Boston Strong, um, very similar to when I ran New York, you know, after 9-11. Um, and I'll always tell people this, and, you know, they'll be like, really? And I'm like, yeah, Really? Every runner I know, we were all worried about crossing the Verrazano Bridge. I don't know one runner who wasn't worried something was going to happen to us. I mean, I don't care how many helicopters were out there. I don't care how many police and guard dogs were out there. You know, that that was what those times made you feel like, you know, when these kinds of things were happening to us. So in some regards, by us going out there and running, uh, by us going out there and showing everybody, hey, man, you can, you're not going to fuck with us. You're not going to take our sport from us. You're not going to take our love of what we do away. And then to have that race on that day, you know, when Meb wins, man, I mean, that's just like adds the cherry on the top for sure. And the parties afterwards must have just been totally epic, right? I actually think I jumped in my car and drove home <laughs> right after the race. <laughs> well, obviously, that would never happen in today's ORT environment. You wouldn't let me know. <laughs> yeah, that, that would never have happened, man. I would have been like, you would have been guilted into sticking around and sleeping over in my room or on somebody's floor or something, man. We would never have let that happen, man. Even after the monsoon year, man. Like, I didn't even go back to my hotel room, man. I was in medical tent and, you know, it was like 93 body temperature and I my clothes are drenched and I went into some coffee shop on Boylston Street and then just dragged my ass over to Cheers, man. You can't, you can't miss the post-race party. It is kind of sad. If we'd have known each other then, just how much more epic that would have been for you to celebrate that run for you. You know, and like when I think back to like me running in the hundredth, like I didn't, you guys were, you know, you were kids, you know, that was 1996, you know, and I ran 241 in that race. And we had a big party up in like my hotel room, but nothing like today when we all go out and just all the runners come, right? It doesn't even matter if you invite them or not. It's a party. Everybody's got their medals. You know, everybody gets invited, right? It's totally different now just being a coach, having the groups and just different groups online. Because um, back then I trained on my own. I trained being living an hour outside the city. That's where all the training groups are. So I would just train on my own, coach myself. And I just went in there and raced. And got out of there right afterwards, but I know that doesn't happen today. I, I sort of wish it was different back then, but that's how it was. <laughs> yeah, but it develops your mental toughness though, man. It's that lone wolf mentality. And um, I lived in Sparta, New Jersey then. That was an hour outside of New York City. You know, I was married then and I did all my running around Lake Mohawk and these huge, crazy hill courses. And you know, I, I did most of my long runs alone, Brandon, because none of my friends wanted to run their long runs that fast. And I'm like, look, man, you got to do what the Kenyans do. You got to do what the elite Americans do. They're not run running 20 miles at long, slow distance. You know, you can run one out of every four of your long runs like that, but you, those other ones have to have a purpose. And, you know, man, I'd start off at whatever, and then I'd do at least 10 or 12 miles at six flat or, you know, aiming for around six flat pace because that's what I was trying to run my marathons at. Like in every one of my long runs, that, and those were hills. Those were in the back end of those runs. And, 
you know, a lot of times no nutrition too, you know, just doing it. So, you know, you do enough of those, eventually you're going to pop your 229, you know, on, you know, up, you know, that day and you're going to have your day, or you're going to place 38th on a day when it's like 90 something degrees and the attrition is all around you dying. Right. I mean, you, would you say the long run is the single most important thing in marathon training, or would you say it's like a combination of, you know, now uh, obviously nutrition plays such a big part of it too, but you know, what type of long runs you're doing probably play the most impact? Absolutely. I think a mistake too many people do, as you just mentioned, just all easy LSD type runs. And if you want to have a goal and want to have a marathon pace, you got to be familiar with it in training. You got to put those long run miles in on tired legs, those 20, 21 miles where you're getting 12 to 15 miles of marathon pace work in there, whether it's the Canova four by three miles with the mile floats just to get that prep. Um, and like you were saying before that, going back on a point, um, the solo long runs is, I thought was the biggest thing that made me successful because it did build that strong toughness mentality um, where you grinded it out. Uh, cause I'm not the fastest guy in the world. I've never broken 16 minutes for a 5k. Uh, and most people that are running my times have easily done that <laughs> cause that's what five 15 pace and I'm running 540 marathon pace. So I know those solo long runs is what, uh, the success and I would mix it up one weekend. It might be a solo run easy. And the next weekend would be the marathon pace stuff like we were talking about. Yeah. So I think that's so important because, um, you know, did not know that about your 5k also i couldn't break 17 minutes forever even when i was running you know high, you. <laughs> high 238 low 240s i mean i think i ran a dozen 240s but i couldn't break 17 minutes and when i finally did it it's not like i broke way through i mean it was 1656 1648 i finally got down to maybe i don't know 1638 i only broke 17 like a handful of times like three or four but i ran like nine million 1701s i mean hell i could run a 1701 you know like after doing a 20 miler the day before but don't ask me to run any faster so you were similar with 16 which is not a surprise because there's a full 10 minutes between you know like my fastest marathon time and yours but that's really interesting so aerobic power and strength you know, all the way through and through. And you never ran a half, which I find really interesting, man. I'm surprised you didn't want to just go out and just crush a crazy fast half at one point. But, you know, when you're so focused on mileage and strength, a lot of times it just doesn't work out, right? Absolutely. I just never liked the idea of backing off training to go. I mean, you could run it on tired legs, but to back off training to go to a race and um, to run a half. So I would just do it. So like I've split one eleven solo in a tempo run and I, I would do that, but we know those aren't official. So <laughs> technically I don't have an official half to you. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if you could do that in training, you know, you could have, and you know, it's, it's all important at the end of the day, you know, it just matters to the person if it matters to them, if it doesn't matter, who cares? You know, if you don't care about the 5k, don't run a 5k, you know, if you don't like the marathon, don't run the marathon. See, that's one of the things, man, as a coach, like, I think, you know, uh, and I did talk about Kim with this too, because she's doing some coaching herself now. It's like, people feel like they have to run a marathon, man. You don't run the marathon if you don't want to run a marathon, man. Run the distances you love, man. Or if you're really into track or you're really into cross country, focus on what you love, man. Don't you think that's an important thing to pass along? Because I just think too many people just kind of follow the herd, right? So they see people wanting to run Boston. So they think, oh, I guess I have to run Boston, man. If you're not into running Boston, and that's not like your goal, then you're never really going to hit what you're looking for with your own running, right? 
Absolutely. You you want to number one is you want to enjoy what you're doing. If you I hated 5K, so I didn't do 5Ks. If someone hates a marathon, they shouldn't do a marathon. because uh, you're gonna get more out of yourself um if you like what you're doing. And let's face it, we're not being paid for it, anything like that. Every time we go out there, we should be grateful and just enjoying the process. And if it's something that you're not, then you probably shouldn't be doing that event. Yeah, exactly, man. We gotta we got if we're doing what we love and we're passionate about, um, then it's going to come easier to us. Right. And it's not always easy. Um, you know, when we're battling injuries or maybe gaining some weight because it's, you know, we're not feeling as good about our running. And also in these COVID times, and although we're close to being out of this thing, we're not really going to truly be out of this thing until all races are actually happening. And we don't read about a race actually being canceled again or being converted to virtual or Tokyo for the 80th year in a row, freaking only allowing elites to run. It's just like, I was supposed to run that race in 2020. It's good. I mean, how many years are we going to do this of like not allowing people to come over and run? So, um, we're not out of it yet. But at the end of the day, man, you got to find what's going to light your fire with your running, not your friends, not the other people in Team ORT or McCurdy group, or if you're a lone wolf and you're just doing your own running, man, you got to find out what fires you up. You got to find out what is going to make you want to get out there and get after it, not what somebody else is is interested in. Can't say it any better. That's the number one thing. You got to find what lights that fire for you. Yeah, I think purpose, um, and you know, there's a lot of great charities out there, and they help you with that. You know, if you're struggling raising money and you really do want to run Boston, but you can't qualify, or at least not capable of it right at this moment, you know, you got to find something you believe in and have a purpose for. You know, if somebody in your family has died of a cancer or an illness or Alzheimer's or just whatever it might be, um, if that has happened in your family or in your history or to a friend, it's going to be a lot easier for you to fundraise or maybe run the London Marathon or the Boston Marathon because you actually feel like you're making a difference for a cause that actually matters. Um, or for me, like when I ran for Tommy Rives, like I just wanted to do that, man. I wanted to try to help his family out and, you know, it was going to be my 60th birthday. So 60 miles, like the, the two came together and ironically it came out that I raised exactly $6,000. So it was all sixes, man, which is kind of crazy. But, um, you know, you got to find out you know, like what is important to you. And, you know, whether you're a lone wolf or working with uh, Team ORT or, you know, haven't run since high school or college, or maybe you've never even run at all. Once you start to run and you see you enjoy it, you know, before you even start thinking about goals, man, it's so damn important to figure out, like, why are you actually doing it? Like, is it just because it makes you feel really good? You feel better about yourself? Your mental health feels better? Just the, the moment of, like, moving through space and time, like, hey, man, I actually just really like this. It doesn't need to be deeper than that. It doesn't have to be some big spiritual thing. You just got to enjoy what you do. And like you said, the charity runners probably have the some of the best motivation to get going because they're doing it for a cause that's Let's face it, most of them are doing it to something that's uh, give them the fire to get out there and just want to succeed for that cause. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, so let's jump back for a minute because we didn't get into your New York race, which I know is a big one for you because, uh, you know, look, face it, man, you know, crushing it in Boston a, a bunch of times as you have done, and that's local, that's in your area. For you to come down to New York, if I remember, I think didn't Peter Chacha hook you up because, you know, you wanted to get in. And, you know, get into that race and run the race. Didn't he help you get situated to get on the starting line to run New York for that race, if I'm not mistaken? 
Uh, yeah, New York does it right. Um, they've uh, this got me into the sub elite program all three years I do it, and they treat you like the pros. I mean, I'm there at 6 a.m. on the side of the street corner, and all the pros are walking by, and we're getting on all the same buses going to the indoor track to warm up. Um, I was the last time I ran New York warming up on the indoor track was the year Shailene won that one, and I'm warming up on the track literally right behind her. Uh, so you just they treat you the sub elites at New York like a pro and no other marathon does that. It's, uh, he, I think he started that program and it's just, um, probably one of the best out there. Yeah. I mean, what an experience. And I, I don't think people realize that. I'm glad you brought light to that, but, um, my, um, sports Cairo, um, who's amazing. Um, he's over there with a group of people over in Staten Island at the indoor facility over there that you talk about it. You know, they work on runners, they help them stretch a little bit. You got the indoor track. Some people are doing strides and just going through stuff. And some people are just, you know, listening to music, you know, it just depends on whatever the routines are, but what a fanboy thing for, to be an awesome runner like you are to be in the sub elite and have the special bib and be up there on the starting line with them. But then also, you know, they're all there just warming up just like you, man. We're all runners at the end of the day, man. We're all pinning a number on our singlet, right? And uh, getting ready to toe the line. So how crazy fun was that, man? One of the highlights, it might've been the first year of that program and I'm standing there in the bathroom and literally right in front of me is Meb. So I struck up a conversation, was just chatting with him and he's getting ready to race and he's just chatting. And I think his lines were the most important thing is to have fun out there today. <laughs> I love it. I mean, Meb's attitude is so infectious, right? I mean, you know, besides the fact that he always has a smile on and he's so positive and um, man, he's just one of the best, best ambassadors for our sport ever. He is like some people I wouldn't even say something to you. you can tell they're in the zone and all that but he's just so approachable and will take the time to talk to you even when he's getting ready to race yeah and your best new york was it 2016 was your best new york um yeah my first new york was actually was my best i did it in 16 17 and 18 i think i think i got a minute slower each time uh different strategies first time going out the last five miles kicked my ass uh and even going out slow the last two years after that still the last five miles just no matter what i think just beat you down yeah i don't think people realize unless they've run a lot of other courses just how tough the new york course is new york is just a brutally tough course um even living here i where i do where i can run most of those miles of course i can't go run of the verrazano bridge um at the start but other than that you can pretty much run almost all of that course from there and one of the most famous runs the most well-attended runs organized by every damn team club around including Tracksmith and all the big local new york city running clubs are the final 10 because you know you dump in you know after coming in off onto first avenue at mile 16 you can run the last 10 miles and it's great man because even then then you see, you still got to tackle a couple of bridges in the last 10. You know, you're still on concrete uh, enough to beat your legs up. And then Fifth Avenue is always the secret weapon that no one seemingly ever prepares for or realizes is going to be so tough. Kind of like the bridge mile in Boston. I mean, before you before you get into the park, man, you got to get your ass beat on Fifth Avenue, right? Miles, Pierre Hill. <laughs> uh, mile 20, 23, it's nothing crazy, but it's just the stage in the race. And it's just, uh, I think every single year, my quads were just locking up right at that point. But if you can get through that mile, I, I actually like the last 
too, because just the up and down of the pack, I think it gets the fatigue out of those legs a little bit, but mile 23. <laughs> I agree with you. And I also think too, and, and although it is fairly lined on Fifth Avenue these days, think about it. If you're a veteran person who's out there on the course, you're going to tell your friends to be on Fifth Avenue because you're going to be suffering in that spot anyway. Why not? So this year... I had my friends and they're like, you want Coke? I'm like, yeah, I want a bottle of Coke. They go, do you want us to like take all the fizz out? I'm like, no, I don't want you to take all the fizz out. Like, I don't care. I don't care if it goes up my nose. I don't care if it comes out my ears. I want the fizz. I want the Coke. And I got to tell you, dude, when I stopped and did a selfie with them and hugged them for a minute, I was so tempted to just like hang out there and just be like, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to hang out here and be a spectator, man. I didn't realize how much pain it was going to cost me to have to restart because I had to go back up. You know, I stick. I think I had 10 more blocks to get to 90th where you dump into the park. And, you know, 10 blocks in the city is a half mile. So that half mile was, was a struggle fest. But as you said, once you get into the park, you got the natural rhythm. You got ups and downs. And the park is just so deep with people. There are just people everywhere waving flags and screaming and yelling. And it's just wild, man. The energy is like nothing else, man. It's just off the hook, right? It was like, like you were mentioning on Fifth Ave, that's kind of quiet too, which I think makes it tougher because not many spectators are there. They're either on First Ave on the other side or in the back waiting for you. So, but once you get into the park, it's just two miles of just packed crowds that just bring you home there. Yeah, no doubt. And how did you like the New York energy, you know, racing with the sub elites um, versus Boston? I mean, did you feel like com compare the crowds? Because I mean, you know, they're my two favorite races and I don't really ever like to pick one over the other because they're my favorites for different reasons. Um, because I was fitter and younger when I got involved with Boston running the 99th and the hundredth. Um, and then I never ran New York when I was that fit, which is just weird, but I just didn't, um, it just didn't match up with my schedule back then. I wish I had, you know, I just didn't, didn't do it. But for you, what, what do you feel like the New York energy is like versus the Boston energy? Pains me to say it since I'm a Bostonian, but I think New York, the energy's off the hooks compared to Boston. I think it's a step up. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, but I, and it's not even like I'm trying to defer or be loyal to both, but I just feel the energy is different in both and amazing in both and incredible. Like both experiences are like remarkable. They're like A plus, A plus both. But New York is just, it's just wilder in every way. And it's just so different because- of the pockets of the city that you're going through, you know, from choir singers and, and live bands performing and rappers on a street corner and, you know, like choir. I mean, you get everything. And then you have all the running club teams are all out there with their signs. And, you know, it's just really remarkably something. And Boston, you know, it's just narrower, you know, which is more intimate, right? I mean, you're running by people's lawns that I've seen for, you know, 20 something years. I mean, you know, I've watched those people grow up and get older, you know, like it's the same lawn and kind of the same signs and you know where the music is going to be, you know, where the Rocky songs are going to be on. And yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, man, because that kind of really never changes for Boston. That, that consistency is there. You summed it up great because Boston's sort of that small town feel the first 16 miles to get into the city where New York, you're just in the city the entire time. Um, so the crowds in just that and going straight up a bridge with the helicopters flying over the tugboats below. Then you dump right down into Brooklyn and it's just the packed city atmosphere where Boston, there's some stretches, as you know, in Boston, four or five miles where, like you said, just someone sitting out in their lawn chair in a yard and no one else around them. <laughs> It's true. 
It's absolutely true. But I think the kind of the, the intimacy of Boston where the difference is there is you might be more likely to just start striking up conversations with the runners around you because of that. Cause it is a little more, you know, private or quiet, if you will. And in New York, you know, like it kind of doesn't happen as much because it's usually more of the crowd in you, you know, somebody seeing you, they see your Jersey, they see your hat and they're like, Whoa, go motherfucker. Let's go. And it's like, you know, you say something to them and the people are just going off the hook, man. It's just bananas, man. And then I'll see my, some friends of mine out there and then they'll just like jump in and run like a half mile or something or, you know, Hey man, what do you need? I'll go get you some stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Can you get me a bottle of Morton? You know? Okay. All right. I'll, I'll see you up the road in two miles. You know? I mean, that's, that's just like the coolness of, of the sport that is kind of hard to replicate, right? Two totally different experiences, like like you've been mentioning. You really can't compare the two uh, per se because they're just so unique in what makes them awesome events. For sure, man. For sure. So let's get into O'Leary Racing Team, man. How did it come to be? Um, it's obviously your your idea, your thing, your name. Um, when did it come to be? Like, where did the idea come from? And, you know, just talk a little about, you know, kind of the philosophy of the team, what it's about, because man, it's, it's pretty awesome group. And it's wonderful to see, you know, some of the results and the camaraderie and the connection, you know, of the athletes that are part of that group. Like I mentioned earlier, how I was coaching high school. So that's how I got my start into coaching. And then I stepped aside on that when I was training seriously, but it was 2016. Um, Mario Frioli, I know, you know, him from the running scene knows him. Uh, he was running a new company out of San Francisco, Ekadin coaching. It only lasted like 18 months cause it just wasn't working out, but that's how I got into online coaching. Um, a couple of people that I still coach today were from that, but then once they closed, that's when I kept coaching them and there's just developed the O'Leary racing team out of the own. That's actually where, uh, Casey came over. <laughs> She was one of my originals from Ekadin, and she came over with me to O'Leary Racing Team. Super cool, super cool. So, did you did you and Mario run against each other in college, or are you different ages? We actually did. We're the same age, and since he's a Massachusetts guy, uh, and how I mentioned, I went to UMass Lowell. He was actually at Stonehill, which is the rivals to UMass Lowell. So we were at all. That's how he knew me. So he reached out to me to get me back into coaching on the online stuff. Very cool. Very cool. And Ekadin, I just got my Ekadin next 2% orange shoes the other day, man. They helped me on my 16 miler the other day, man. So Ekadin is so popular in Japan. The Ekadin relay races over there are like legendary. They're, they're more popular than the races themselves, man. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. So Casey was one of your first. So who was the, was it just literally a handful of runners that transitioned over when you, when you actually launched O'Leary? Yeah, it was a couple transferred over and then some other people just from online started reaching out. I think it was our buddy Carlos that reached out first. And uh, once I started getting new people, that's when I formed the group. And then we sort of went from there. Love it. So we got a shout out to the Soto family in Guatemala, everybody's favorite. So we got the father-son duo. Uh, you know, I can help you here because I know a lot of the backstory of this stuff. So I know you coached father and son to sub threes. And that's got to be like a career highlight for sure. Um, because it's not like they were coming in crazy fit and had some amazing running histories, right? So we'll, we'll start there because we can talk about some of the athletes you've worked with and how you've helped them progress, but that will be a good one to start with. Absolutely. Since everyone seems to know them, <laughs> our favorite Guatemalan duo there, uh, 
when they started, I think Carlos was like 314 and his son was 318 marathoners. And the goal for them was just to get the younger one to BQ because they wanted to line up to Boston together as a father-son. Um, and they reached out uh, the spring, the year of Boston with the monsoon. Just after that is when I started coaching them. Um, and then that fall is when they lined up to Chicago. We set the goal as three flat, which is a huge improvement from going through 314 to 318 and not knowing what was going to happen. But we knew they were fit enough to do it. And it's definitely one of the highlights because first time they went after it together, they got that accomplishment done. Yeah. I mean, that that's such an amazing story. And, you know, being part of, you know, that group and your Facebook group. So I kind of follow everybody's running and training and key workouts and stuff. And I, I actually remember that one because we all watch each other's races and it's so different from, you know, when I grew up and I raced and when you grew up and you're racing Boston in your earlier years, you know, no one had any idea how you didn't race, you know, you, you know, helmet. I didn't even have, we didn't even have internet, you know, so we didn't, or email might've been just coming around. So, you know, I had to tell all my friends how I did and they didn't have no other way to know unless they were in Boston, you know, who did what, or you waited for the newspaper to come out. The New York times would have the New York um, city marathon results and in Boston too. Similarly, you know, you could look somebody up, but imagine going through 30 or 40,000 runners and trying to find, you know, O'Leary, it's not alphabetical, but now we can all track each other. And I distinctly remember because, you know, Carlos Jr., you know, the son was behind dad in that race. And, you know, now I know his son is really, his fitness levels really come up and he's run running much faster times these days. But I think he really had the battle in that one, right? Um, to come through in the end. But he ended up getting sub three too, right? Didn't they both get a sub three in that race? Uh, yeah, they both did it together, which was, I don't, I don't think you could make a movie on that. Dreaming it up to both get sub three the same day, the BQ, everything lined up. I think dad was... 258, I think he pulled away from him late and he was 259 holding on. But I can only imagine the uh, emotions that they had and the the joy. I know everyone was tracking them online. Every 5K, the splits going on and people people were all celebrating them. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And, um, you know, I think, um, you know, that's kind of the secret sauce of what makes these training groups succeed and flourish in the end. Um, you know, Leary Racing Team, um, you know, McCurdy, these other great groups that are out there. It's really the coaching philosophy, you know, from you, um, you know, from James McCurdy, from anybody, you know, you're all following a lot of the same principles, right? We, we were talking about Canova workouts for, I'm a big fan of Canova stuff for marathoning because it works, man. Face it. Some of the greatest Kenyan runners, some of the greatest um, track and field runners are using a lot of those principles. So we know they work, but I think, you know, just being around it and being around you, you know, you care so much about the athletes and that's a big, big piece of it. But so does Casey, who is also a coach. And we could talk about Casey a little because you coach Casey, you know, to the Olympic trials and we were all down there, man. I mean, that, I think that's what makes ORT. That's the secret sauce or the fun uh, component of ORT is, um, you know, we all went down to Atlanta, um, you know, Dr. Bill and, and, uh, and Logan, you know, the dynamic duo are out there running together um, Stephanie's out there running the half with like her aunt, if I remember, or some family member, um, you know, obviously Casey's running in the trials and we're all like screaming our heads off, you know, going bananas. Um, but I think that's what makes it unique is that everybody is all just like seriously cares so deeply about the other runners in the group. And it doesn't have to be who that's Casey because she's running Olympic trial standard times. It can be 
somebody running a 30 minute 5k. I mean, everybody is invested and cares about the outcomes. Absolutely. Um, the biggest, as you mentioned, how you would compare in the other groups, everyone sort of follows the same philosophies, uh, coaching wise, whether it's Daniels, Canova, uh, all these others out there. But the biggest thing is, I think the most important thing is not so much the X's and O's, but trying to understand each person, know what they're going through on their daily life and just, um, being able to care for them and figuring out what works for them for what, what doesn't, as you mentioned earlier, we're not speed guys. We couldn't run 5Ks, 10Ks. So something like that, you got to emphasize the strength spot, spot. But you don't, you won't be able to get to know that unless you get to know each person that you're coaching. And um, how you bring up in Atlanta um, that weekend, that's just a great example of everyone was out there cheering around because we try to build that family culture where everyone's cheering for the person running the Olympic trials or the person running a 30-minute 5K in the 5k the race down there yeah and i think that's the big thing for any runner out there that hasn't like hit their goals yet or maybe they're newer to the sport that might be listening to the show like you have to figure out your own why we talked about that before like what's really getting the juices flowing for you you know figure it out man what do you want to do what are you best at you know what brings you the most joy and you know is it speed is it fast stuff is it running on the track or is it like longer runs and longer distance like it's not that hard once you put some time in you'll figure it out but once you get that piece figured out you know having a coach is one thing what makes the system work is is your ability to flex with the athletes. Um, you know, you're coaching a lot of different types of people. Um, you know, Dr. Bill, I said before with Logan, you know, pushing his son, you know, in the wheelchair, right? And then you have Stephanie is also a doctor. So, you know, they've got a lot of hours, you know, that they've got to be in front of patients and handling them and their schedules are crazy. So workouts, man, they get written out to be, you know, here in the middle of the week, at the end of the week, but sometimes all of that is going to get flipped literally to, okay, this one's going to go away this week. We're just going to scrap that all together. And this has to be put over here and that's going to be put over there. And how much of a role do you think that plays in potential success or failure of how someone's doing working with a coach? That's huge because obviously everyone's work life is each person's different. Uh, as you mentioned, Stephanie being a doctor, she just can't go out there and put 80 miles of, because the time's not there. So you got to find out what works for each person um, and be willing to change it. Like there's times where some of them might get called into work and they're there to nine o'clock at night and they can't run. So you got to on the fly, be able to adapt it and not just stick to it and say, we have to do this no matter what, because that's not going to work with each person. It won't. And then when people like Stephanie start doing completely psycho, crazy things, which maybe I might've had some influence on, I don't know, maybe not, um, deciding she's going to run like every major in the fall, which was completely bananas and so much fun. Um, when she first mentioned that to you, what was it? What was your first reaction? That she was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she's famous for, uh, just all of a sudden, just sending me an email saying I might've done something crazy today. And it might've been a two weeks notice where it was, I'm going to run five marathons in what, 40 days. Exactly. Well, you know, she's a skydiver and a pilot. So she's got the crazy streak in her and her brothers are like MMA full contact dude. So yeah, crazy runs in the family, but we like crazy at ORT. So that's a good thing. Um, but how cool was that to see her pull that shit off? That, that had to be pretty cool as a coach because not only did she make it through, she made it through strong. I mean, she made it through healthy and, you know, like she's going to come out of this thing stronger for it, right? 
Absolutely. Like we just approached it as obviously you're not going to try to race them. We'll just get in there, have a strong run each time, be kind of conservative. You can push things late. And I think she got, well, did she get faster each race? I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. For, for each, that, I'm, it, it was close. Uh, Boston, to, obviously not. Yeah, Boston and Chicago. Yeah, because they were they were obviously not even a day apart. I mean, yeah, people say a day apart. They're not a day apart, man. You're running through the airport for half your day, and you're landing, and you know it was crazy because we were texting, you know, back and forth, man. It, it's just wild because I was with her in London, and you know I didn't do Chicago, but I, I saw her for a bunch of the rest of them, and you know she's texting me about where she's going to get her food, and I'm just like, I was, I never worry about you know, very many people like, and I trust her. She's just so good at travel. Like me, we travel so much, but I was just worried like something was going to screw her up. I just wanted to make sure she could get there. And, you know, once I knew she got the boss and I'm like, this girl's in, man, she's going to, she's going to pull this off. And then we did the pod the next day, which was super cool. And, um, yeah, she finished strong in New York too, man, for sure. So, um, you know, I think the important thing out of that, not only doing the five and whatever, what, I don't even know if it was 40 days, it might've been 30, 37 days. I should remember that from our show, but you know, she came out of it stronger. Um, so sometimes running a lot of marathons is not bad. Sometimes it's a terrible idea. It depends on the athlete and can their body handle it? You know, can they, you know, come off of that cycle and maybe gain and improve from it? And like you mentioned, how you got to find what you like. She wanted to do this. She had that enjoyment and that fire and that it might not be ideal uh, training philosophy wise, but sometimes you got to make it work. So that's what we did. And she succeeded doing it because we adapted the program to make it work for her. Very cool. And again, I think that's the flex component that makes, you know, ORT click and work because you're working with these athletes from so many different backgrounds, moms of multiple kids and, you know, crazy busy jobs, people who are traveling a lot like her and figuring out how to make it work. And I think like one more fun one, just because, you know, sub three is such a big deal for us. Um, you know, it's such a, a big number that so many of us are chasing to go ahead and get. And I know Aaron, um, you know, had a big breakthrough and got a sub three recently working with you. Do you want to, you want to talk a little about that for her and how that came together? Yeah, she actually worked with Casey first time around. And, um, then when COVID shut down, she took her time off and, uh, then got back to it, to it was following the same plan. Now she's working under me, but uh, you mentioned sub three. She trained all fall, increased her miles. I think it was an 18 minute PR, <laughs> right in 258 at CIM, which was not just her. We had another guy run, Jeremy run break three for the first time. We had a guy coach who's actually a bodybuilder, ran his first marathon, ran a 258. <laughs> And he's like a 200 pound guy. Uh, so CIM was just awesome to see three people just all together, just break three for the first time, led by her having that huge personal best. Amazing. And then, and then wait, we, you had the sister brother team too, right? Didn't, um, wasn't there, didn't you, wasn't there a sister brother team that was running out there? I do have a sister brother, Jeremy Weiss and Amanda, the Coast Cup, but she didn't run out there. She didn't run that. But that's okay. probably where you Yeah, get yeah. That. That's exactly what I'm thinking. But he ran. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely why I'm thinking of it. But yeah, man, it's it's great to see the growth and, you know, the success. And, you know, look, any good coaching platform, you know, I could coach one athlete, you can coach another one, and another coach could come in. I mean, the philosophy of the program is the philosophy of the program. I mean you know, so Casey was working with her at first and, you know, now Casey is now back coaching, which is great for you, right? So you can take on more athletes and, you know, try to continue to build things out further, man. I mean, that's the goal, right? Absolutely. I'd love to be able to 
continue to expand because there's only so much I can do on my own. So when she came back, it was easy to take on more athletes because I'd love to try to continue to grow it to even have maybe a sub elite developmental team just trying to, because I know not everyone gets coaching and they might not think they need it, but it can help everyone uh, just to have that second uh, mind, eyes to bounce ideas off of. Yeah. I mean, that's a great, uh, that's a great like long-term goal. I mean, do you have any other goals like for the group moving forward, man, because it's great to see the success um, and, you know, having been a part of it, you know, where you were coaching me for a while, um, you know, I just think the secret sauce again is just that the people in the group, everybody just genuinely really cares for each other, man, and is really inspired when somebody does something good. And it's not always about a PR. It's just, you know, getting over an injury, getting healthy, somebody's kid doing something in school. Like, I mean, I think that's like, um, again, you know, just something that kind of connects and brings everybody closer and this makes it easier to root for each other, you know, when we're trying to uh, get after our goals. 100% right. Because um, it is, they call themselves the the one big close-knit family. Uh, and they are, they're all cheering for one another. And future goals, as you were mentioning for it, I'd love to continue to expand it. Love to make it my full-time job, but we'll, we'll see on that. But uh, with the expansion, the one thing I'd never do is I never want to lose that close, intimate feel that we have for each person, because I think that's what makes it special. As you said, people posting pictures of their kids at school and everyone congratulating them on accomplishments. And that makes you want to go out there and run and do good because you know all these people are caring about you and watching you, um, tracking you online and watching you to see how you do. Yeah, no doubt. And um, I also think, you know, when you're having success as an athlete being coached by you or by Casey, you're going to want to share that with your running community friends. Like, man, I work with, and I see threads like that all the time, you know, in the sub three, you know, Facebook group or the, uh, the racing shoe group or all these other threads where somebody say, Hey man, who has a good coach? Or, you know, I really want to work to try to get an OTQ or something. And people are like, Oh, go with, co go with ORT. ORT is great. And you know, that's got to make you feel good, but that's hopefully going to continue to build upon itself, you know, as more success stories are out there, you know, with your athletes that they bring kind of friends of friends, if you will, and maybe the same way similarly coaching, you know, whereas, you know, you have Casey who you worked with for a really long time, you know, going back to the Ekaden days and getting her to the Olympic trials to run in Atlanta, you know, maybe she's going to know another athlete who's coaching now that, you know, maybe she brings into the fold or another athlete on the team says, Hey, I heard this person wants to coach and, you know, that type of situation. Absolutely. Everything uh, we do is word of mouth. That's so important these days. And I'd love to bring more people on too. And um, it's just a way to develop things. Yeah. So, man, we covered some good stuff. Uh, we finally got to pull this thing off, man, which I'm excited about. And we got the, we got the game kicking off soon, man. Is there anything either on your running personally or on like ORT personally that we didn't get to that you wanted to highlight or talk about uh, before, we, uh, before we roll out, brother? I think just one thing to say about just coaching in general, because um, I've had some athletes say this before when they thought they'd never been fast enough to get a coach, they've never, it's not worth it for them to get a coach. They don't, they're not, like I said, fast enough. It really doesn't matter. If you're willing to want to try to get the best out of yourself, then coaching's for you. It doesn't matter if you're a three hour marathon or a five hour marathon. You, if you want to do something, you deserve to have the ability to be coached. And um, 
a good coach will just help you get the most out of your ability because we all know that the challenge is against yourself, not against anyone else. It's about trying to get that potential out, out, out of yourself to meet your goals. Oh, that's so well said. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, I always talk about running as trying to be the best version of ourselves. Well, being the best version of ourselves, it extends to all areas of our life. You know, when, when our running is going well and we feel really good about ourselves in our running, we're better parents, we're better fathers, we're better husbands, wives, brothers, business partners, and everything else, because it's such a key part of our own, you know, taking care of our own self, man, because it's such a key part of all of us. And just to move through space and time, the act of running, the act of putting on a pair of sneakers and just going outside. And, you know, you feel like a kid, man. You throw snow into the equation, you throw rain into the equation, you throw some element into the equation. And it just, for me, it will always remind me of being a kid. It'll always remind me of, you know, running around the playground, doing something crazy, um, getting away from people, trying to be the fastest from here to there. And, you know, like, to, you know, what you talked about there is, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're trying to BQ. It doesn't matter if you even dream of ever running a marathon. If you just want to be healthy and you want to know that you have somebody giving you some guidance, because even on our Facebook groups, right, which are open, like the New York City page where I'm one of the admins on, you see how reticent people are to ask even the most basic questions you see. Sure, certain people are just bold and they'll come right out there and ask you, hey, man, what about this gel or that? But then the rest of the people... They don't say anything. They're quiet, man. They're, they're on that page, but they're not really asking any questions. And you and I both know that if you are a beginner runner or really just kind of figuring it all out, you need resources, man. And that's one of the greatest things about having a coach because it isn't just a direct relationship that they have with you. It's that you can throw those kind of questions out on a private Facebook page and just say, hey, has anybody ever run with this? brand of shoe before or use this type of fueling before or whatever it might be not to mention all the discounts that we have access to and other things like that so those are big you know benefits to being involved in a group because then you have people that are like rooting for you man and will take an interest in what you're doing and if you hit a rut and you get injured or you're just struggling with any area of life including when we lose people like we we all do you know, with Dr. Bill recently, man, like those people will always have your back, man. They will care about you. They'll support you and they'll make you feel like you're being paid attention to. And it, it just makes you feel better as a human being. So it's, uh, I agree with you, man. And it's my plug for sure. You know, I know ORT is one of the best damn groups out there to get involved with. So if anybody's looking for a coach, highly endorsed. So I appreciate you coming on, man. It's really been fun learning more about your running, how you got your start, and how you got the uh, ORT group to come to be. So uh, as we say at the end of every episode, Brandon, we tell everybody to keep lacing them up, to keep getting out the door, and always remember to stay in the fight. Fun times catching up with my man, Brendan O'Leary. We tried a couple of times and we had some tech issues. His laptop just wasn't working with Zoom and we couldn't pull it together. So it was a treat that he got a new laptop through the school he teaches at. And we we're finally able to pull it off and uh, sit across from each other on the Zoom screen and get this, uh, get this convo recorded, man. Uh, it was super fun exploring some of his best races as an athlete. And uh, I, definitely equally fun. You can just hear the excitement in his voice when he talks about Team ORT 
O'Leary Racing Team, and just, you know, how enthused he is for his athletes when they have breakthroughs and meet their goals. And him and Coach Casey play a part in that uh, by just willing to adapt programs, make whatever changes are necessary based on people's busy lives and schedules, and just always be willing to work to accommodate their athletes. And, uh, you know, they've great created this wonderful atmosphere of family. They fostered this goodwill amongst each other where every athlete that wears that jersey is really pulling for each other and tracking each other online and rooting for each other. And what an experience of a huge group of us had down in Atlanta watching Casey race in person and uh, in the marathon trials. And the next day, watching Dr. Bill and Logan race, watching Stephanie and her aunt race. And there may have even been a few others of us uh, down there that weekend too. But boy, did we have a good time with our families. Uh, just celebrating uh, the great result of Casey getting there and working so hard to uh, qualify for the trial. So anyway, hope you all enjoy this one and the uh, team atmosphere um, that ORT's created. If you're looking for a coach, I couldn't endorse uh, O'Leary Racing Team more. Uh, they're doing great work. Uh, both Brendan and Casey are just terrific coaches, terrific runners, terrific athletes, and uh, also wonderful humans as well. So hope you all enjoy this one as much as I did. And, uh, and Brendan and I did, I should say, and, uh, you know, keep sharing folks. That's just so important to us here at run chats. Keep sharing those episodes, keep taking the time to write a review. It helps us get great guests like Brendan on the show. And most importantly, it brings new runners, uh, to our channel to listen to these inspiring stories. So keep up the great work, keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door, my friends, and always remember to stay in the fight. Peace out, my friends.